The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise be to God's word. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City. We are pleased that you are with us this morning. If this is your first time joining us, uh, my name's Justin. I'm the pastor here. Uh, We are an Acts 29 church here in the Quad Cities that strives to live out the gospel and to declare the gospel and display the gospel throughout the city through missional communities. And we want to welcome you here worshiping with us this morning. Now, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into studying the Word of God together. Father, you are a good God and you are a good dad. Uh, We thank you for sending your spirit to draw us here, to gather us in as your church, as your people. We thank you for your word that teaches us and that guides us and that rebukes us and brings us to repentance, that shows us the way of salvation, shows us who you are and what you're like, and it also shows us who we are and, and what we're like. I thank you for this truth, that we would not know you if it wasn't for this truth. We wouldn't know you as clearly as we do if we didn't have the word of God. We would be feeling towards you like men in the dark, bumping around and making up ideas of what we think God is like. But since you've given us your word in the Bible, we know who you are and we know what you're like and we know what you've done to fix us, to save us, to make this whole world right eventually. And today, as we come under the word of God, we ask that you would teach us your ways, that you, we would, you would teach us who you are, we, you would teach us what you're like, and you'd also, Father, only by your spirit, would you give us a glimpse inside ourself, give us a glimpse to really see us, um, how we are in our heart, how we are in our soul. We spend so much time trying to put facades on and put makeup on and cover up who we really are and try to convince others Um, that we're better than we are, try to convince ourselves that we're better than we are, would you really humble us today? Give us grace to study your word. Give us grace to know it, understand it. Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords today, Father? Would it be all of you and none of me? We ask these things 
in your son's precious name for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in the study on the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've affectionately called Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. The book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we've been studying it now for several months. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, If you've missed any of our sermons and want to check up, you can go find them on, on iTunes or on our website, and you can get caught up with us. Right now, we are in chapter 6, and I can't really do all the work I need to do to get you up to date. You'll have to go and listen to those sermons. But I'm just going to start off by saying this. Today's text, it really won't make sense to us as we read it here 2,000 years later after it was written if we don't understand what the church is. Just what is the church? See, many people, and I would say most people in our culture, totally misunderstand what the church of Jesus Christ is. You ask them, what is a church? And they might say, it's a gorgeous looking building with stained glass windows and a steeple. Others will say, well, it's just a gathering of religious people who sing songs and listen to a preacher and um, eat some bread and drink some wine. But the Bible's definition of a church is far more nuanced and way more spectacular than that. If you've been to our membership class, you know that the church is God's people saved by God's power for God's purposes. But this morning, what do we mean when we say that the church is God's people? What does it mean that the church is God's people? Well, one of the clearest definitions of what a church is and what it means to be the people of God is actually found in 1 Peter 2.9, where the apostle says this, But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his, that's God's own possession. A people that's God's own treasure. Like my son's got a little treasure box, right? He keeps all of his favorite things in there. We are a people of God's own possession. We are people in God's special treasure box that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now that scripture is absolutely pregnant with quintuplets, but I don't have time to go into it in detail like it deserves. But I want to do, I want us to see two things in only one phrase that he says there. He says this, the church is a holy nation, a holy nation. Now, if America comes to mind there, uh, you're off, okay? Your biblical exegesis is just off, right? Your hermeneutic is wrong. So, a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? First off, holy. That means the word holy, most of us have no idea what the word holy really means. We've got this vague notion And it means clean or right, and it it does mean that. But holy means to be set apart. It means you've been taken by God and put in his treasure box. You've been taken and set in his, as his own special possession. You've been made holy. You've been set apart and dedicated to God. See, God is himself holy. He's set apart from us, totally different from us. God is not like you. See, here, we like to think God's like us. God likes the people I like, and God hates the people I hate. I'm sorry, but that is not the case. 
God is completely separate from us, completely different from us. He is morally without fault. He is morally perfect. He has never made a mistake. He has never sinned. No one can shake their fist at God and say, you did wrong. He's never done wrong. He alone is good, right, and perfect. This is what it means to be holy. He's separate from us. So Peter says, first, that the church is to be holy, a holy nation. A church is a people who've been picked out of the world by God and placed in his special treasure box. They've been set apart. They've been sanctified. They've been made holy. They've been chosen and set apart for God. They are holy. But secondly, we have this word nation. What the heck does that? A whole, the church is a holy nation, right? I've never pledged allegiance to this, right? I, I don't, what's, the, what's our flag? What does it mean to be a holy nation? It's weird, that word there in the Greek, that word for nation is actually ethnos. Ethnos, where do we get that? What do we get our word from? Ethnic, a holy ethnic, a holy people group. So what does it mean to be a holy ethnos? He says the church is a holy ethnic, a new people group. And much of what I'm going to share with you today, I've learned from Dr. Timothy Keller on his sermon from this same text in 1 Peter 2. And, and I learned a lot about that this week. But listen, I want to ask you this. Why would God call Christians, why would he say to the church, you're a new holy ethnic? Why does holiness turn you into a different ethnicity. Now, here's why. Listen to this. What's the difference between an ethnic group and an organization? See, to be a member of the Boy Scouts or to be a member of the Rotary Club is not the same thing as to be a member of the Latino ethnic group or a member of the Korean ethnic group. Here's why. An ethnic group is an entire culture. It's a completely and totally comprehensively different way of being. Being a part of this culture as opposed to that culture changes everything about you. You can go to the Boy Scouts and still be a white, middle-aged, middle-of-the-road you know, uh, middle of the road American, right? Right? You can go to Boy Scouts and still be African or, or Korean and, and not really much changes. Just maybe one night of the week you go to Boy Scouts and that club changes one night of the week. But to be a part of an ethnic... Of, an ethnic, of a different ethnicity changes everything about you. See, if you're a Boy Scout, it means maybe a couple places of your life has changed, but not everything. You see, if you're African as opposed to Hispanic, as opposed to Asian, a different culture is a totally different way of doing and seeing everything. Your ethnicity determines how men and women relate. Your ethnicity determines how you relate to other people and how do you relate to other races. It determines economic relationships. It determines how the family works. It determines how children are raised. It determines what you think good music is. It determines your attitude toward work. Your ethnicity even determines your sense of humor. To be an ethnic, this ethnic as opposed to that ethnic changes everything about you. Right? Do you get that? See, last week, 
Amanda and I and several other couples from the church, we went to see Jim Gaffigan, the comedian at uh, the Adler. And he was talking about the cultural differences between his family and his wife's family when they got married. He was just blown away. Like, he's an Irish Catholic, and his, family, and his wife, I think, was, was Greek, right? And he's used to being reserved and used to being kind of, in, you know, introverted, not really talking about his emotions. And then he goes to these, uh, these big family reunions, and he goes to all these holidays, and he's just blown away by the, the way the, Greek, the ethnic Greeks, how they relate to each other. He said, they fight for fun. They get together, they fight, they argue, they yell, they scream, and by the end of the day, they're laughing, they're hugging, they're all made up, everything's good. He's like, this, is, this blew me away about this different ethnicity. He's like, I'm an Irish Catholic. When we fight, we make up on your deathbed. Like, our fights last 30 years. Like, you offended me. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you when, at your funeral, right? Like, that, that's how we'll deal with that. Like, the, the ethnicity we're raised in, the ethnicity that we belong to, shapes everything about us right? So to be, what Paul is saying here is our ethnicity changes not just the way we do a few things, but how we see the world and everything, how we respond to everything around us. And Peter says that the church is God's new, holy, ethnic it's a new holy ethnic. It's God's new people group, his new family, his new lineage, his new heritage with their own distinguishing characteristics that he has set apart to be holy. So listen, so to be a part of God's church means that we are holy and now our holiness being set apart by God defines us more than being Americans. Our holiness, the fact that God called us into his family, defines us more than our ethnicity. We are Christians first, Koreans or Latinos or Irish second. It means that we are more Christian than American. We are more Christian than Republican or Democrat or whatever Ron Paul is, right? Christian first. That our faith plays a more dominant role in what we believe and listen and how we live than our native culture. That means the church can no longer be thought of as a club or a social service agency, which is what most people think of it. But it is actually a place where a new humanity is forged. That we come together under the teaching of the word, inside the sacraments, inside the liturgy, and we're learning what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be God's new holy ethnic? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ change the way I work, change the way I neighbor, change the way I parent, change the way I dress, change the way I do whatever job it is that I do, whether it's selling shoes, whether it's selling insurance, whether it's building tractors, whatever it is, how does the gospel change everything about me? How does the gospel impact or influence the way I live my life? It's what it means to be holy. God's new holy ethnic. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians 6, I'm, this is all warm up, is that Paul gets really upset. 
Paul is going to go off here. He gets really upset because two Christians are having a dispute and they can't settle it. So they go to a judge and sue one another in a civil court. And Paul says, fail. You know why he's so upset? He says, you guys don't realize you've just lost. You've already failed. You've lost your ethnicity. You've lost your distinctiveness. You've lost your gospelness. You don't look any different anymore. Fail. The whole point of being a holy people is that we as Christians have to have every part of our lives changed. Every part, we don't get to keep some little segment of our lives and go, all right, I'm going to keep this and I'll let Christianity and my faith affect everything else, but this part's for me. I want to be mean, all right? I'm fine with everything else, but when people, if they're going to cross me, they're going to get it. I'm going to be mean. I had a person, another pastor, we had a meeting this week with, with some parents that were upset and, and she was letting him have it and she just let him know, hey, I'm not a people person. I, I don't like people. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What'd you do? Well, nothing. I just kind of ate crow. I'm like, eat crow, nothing. I would have said right there. Like, you have to say, right? That's not okay. You don't get to be a Christian and just go, I'm a Christian, but I'm really mean to people. It's a personality quirk, right? That's more than a quirk, sister. That's sin. That's a failure to let the gospel change you. It's a failure, failure to live that holy, set apart life that God's called us to live. We need to look different and distinct from our culture. That means, listen, the way we deal with conflict, the way we take criticism, the way we handle the stresses of work, the way in which the races get along, the world is supposed to be looking at the church, at God's holy ethnic and saying, how the heck do you do it? How the heck do you do it? And you know what? In, in some pockets of our church, that's actually happening. We've got missional communities that have very wealthy people, that have very poor people, that have black, white, Asian. We have all kinds of different ethnicities, that, that uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have missional communities where people in the world would never relate to one another. They would never have dinner with one another. They would never have each, over for din each, over, each other over for dinner. But it's happening because of the gospel is the, the gospel is center, center and central in that missional community. Paul is saying the world should be looking in at the church, at this holy ethnic, the way we're doing things and going, what the heck? How are you doing that? How do you get along? How are you living this way? Your God must be a great God. Now, there's only, there's the problem with this is the church is also made up of sinful people. And as I was meditating and as I was praying on this this week, I started really thinking like, churches fail for the same reason marriages fail. They don't fail because of sin. Your marriage won't fail because of sin. The church won't be destroyed because of sin. The church and marriages fail because one or both person stops repenting of sin or stops giving grace. 
Somebody draws a line in the sand and says, no more. You've done too much to me. I can't forgive you. Draw a line in the sand. No more grace. Churches fail. Marriages fail. Or I'm, t- I'm just going to live in this sin. It doesn't really matter. I'm not going to repent anymore. I'm just going to be okay with it. Marriages, churches fail for that reason. And that's what's going on in the church in Corinth. These people are having an argument, right? They, maybe a bad, we don't really know what happened. It's probably a bad business deal. Somebody went over, maybe did some construction on their house, maybe built a table for them, maybe made a tent for them, and maybe it was shoddy work, or maybe he, he scammed them out of some money, or maybe the one guy wouldn't pay him. And instead of these two believers, these two brothers, these two family members who have been holy, they're in the holy ethnic, instead of these two people going to get the elders, going to get the ch- church leaders, going to get the missional community leaders, going to get some other believers... They say, forget it. One guy says, I'm not repenting. One guy says, I'm not giving grace. Let's take it to the judge. Let's take it to the judge. And Paul has very strong words for them. Did you know Christians aren't allowed to sue each other? Right? First step, Matthew 18, is you go to your brother. Second step is you get some friend, a couple people to go with you to your brother to bring correction. Third step is you get the elders, and then the elders judge this matter. This is where a holy new ethnic. We handle our stuff internally. If that doesn't work, then we can appeal to the courts. So, the problem here is Paul is saying, by the holiness of, of your lives, you're a new ethnic. You're a new people. You're forging a new humanity. That's, that a, that's thrilling to me. The church isn't just a place where I go and I eat some bread and I sing some songs and I listen to a sermon and I walk out. This is a, this is a training ground. We're shaping a new ethnic, a new ethnicity, a holy ethnic. We're learning and teaching each other how to live under God's sovereign rule right now in this day and age, as it will be one day in the fullness of it when he comes back and he sets up his kingdom on this earth and he renews all things. We're practicing for that day. That's thrilling to me. The adventure of it, just the the beauty of it, the ambitiousness of it. That's what the church is. It's not just a club. It's it's a holy nation. And we've been called out to be God's holy people, God's special possession in his treasure box. So, with all that, let's jump into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when one of you has a grievance against another, does, look at this, does he dare? Does he dare go to law? I mean, Paul is laying this out like, do you dare? Do you dare to do? I mean, he's laying it on, like letting them know this is wrong, that you are suing each other in in court. He's going to show us why it's wrong. Verse 2. It says, before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Okay, now, what, let, me, let me just let me do, show you what Paul's doing here. Paul's very interesting. Many of us, we, we, we are black and white people. Many of us, we, we see things as moral or immoral, right and wrong. And so when we see someone doing something wrong, we just naturally just go, that's wrong, stop that. Don't be dumb, right? Son, stop being lazy. So, you know, whatever. We, we bring correction. That's not the way Paul brings correction. And this is why. When I do that, when I look at you and go, you're sinning, 
that's wrong, quit it. What I'm doing is I'm going right for your will. Do you know that? Right for your, we, we, we kind of believe the, the body, the human being is made up in three parts to break it down real simple. The head, the heart, and the hands, right? The mind, the cognitive faculties, the heart, what we love and our affections, our emotions, and then our hands, our will, right? Like, I want to do it, I'll do it. And when we tell someone, stop doing that, we're going right for their will, right? But the problem is, is that's not where our behavior starts. Our behavior doesn't start in the will. You know you can tell your kid to go do something, and he can do it-ish, but if his heart's not in it, it won't be done, right? Correct? It'll be done... uh, halfway at best. So what Paul does is, let me show you this, and he agrees with the old Puritan uh, John Owen. This is what Paul's, Paul doesn't just say, stop doing that. Listen, when he sees wrong behavior in their hands, he, he goes first to their mind. He goes first to their mind. He believes behavior stems from good theology. All of our behavior stems from some kind of theology, what we believe to be ultimate. So Paul, instead of slapping their hands and going right after their will, he goes to their head and he says this, do you not know? He says it over and over in this text. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? The only way you can behave this way is if your thinking is off somewhere. If you're suing each other, obviously you think that's okay. Obviously you're not under, you don't understand what Christ has done for you. You're, you're missing it in the mind. John Owen says this, listen. What the mind knows, in summary, what the mind knows and meditates on, the heart will choose to love. The heart will love. What the mind knows and meditates on, the heart will love. And what the heart loves, the will chooses to do. Okay? What the mind meditates on, the heart loves. What the heart loves, the will will choose. Right? So it doesn't matter if you press on somebody's will. If they love something else, they're going to choose that other thing. Our loves determine what we choose, what we love, what we view as good, right, and perfect. So Paul knows that, so he's going to the root of their behavior. Listen, the root of your sin, the root of my sin, the root of our, all of our weirdness and our, all of our quirks starts here, not out here in the hands. You can't stop doing something. You can't stop eating that piece of cake, right? That starts here and here, right? I think this is going to be good. My heart says, it is going to be good. My will says, no, right? That's what happens. Starts here, goes here, goes to the hands. That's how it works. So what Paul says is, your behavior is off because your love is out of whack, because your affections are being stirred by things other than the love of God. You're, 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 you're thinking wrong thoughts, and that's because your mind has forgotten some things. This is what he says, your, your mind is forgotten. Look at verse Two, do you not know, see he's appealing to their mind here, that the saints will judge the world? Now, there's nowhere in scripture that this is clearly spelled out. So this was some teaching. This was some catechism that was going on in the early church. I would, when I read this, I'd be like, actually, I did not know that. The saints, when Christ comes back, somehow Christians will take part in judging the world of their righteousness or unrighteousness. Listen to this, Christians. You will take part in the last days of judging the world. And Paul's saying, whoa, did you forget that? Some of them are like, I don't think I ever knew that, but I see how that. So he's saying, if you're competent enough 
In the future, to judge the world, to partner with God in judging the world, can't you judge these small, trivial cases? A guy's shafted somebody for 50 bucks. Can't you just take care of that yourself in the house, right? You've forgotten something, so now your behavior's out of whack. What else does he say? Keep going. Again, look, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Double. No, I didn't. I'm going to judge angels. Now, the only angels that need to be judged are the one-third of God's angels that rebelled against him in heaven with Lucifer at the helm of that, Satan at the helm of that. Those angels had no chance of redemption. Those angels never got a second chance. Those angels were judged, and we somehow will partake in the judgment of them at the end time. Crazy, right? Now, the implications of those two things that they did not know mean you're well competent to have two brothers come before you and go, dude, come on, man. Give grace to this guy. Forgive him of his debt or bro, pay him back. You have to work this out. You, don't, you shouldn't be going out into the world and taking each other to court. The implications of that, if God trusts you to judge the world, if God trusts you to judge angels, can't you judge trivial matters? And this is what we do in missional community. Missional community, you've been entrusted with a lot of judgment in missional community, right? People bring their sin, people bring their issues, people bring, should I even buy this house in this new neighborhood? And we bring it before the missional community and, and we just, we, we want to make wise decisions. So we bring these things to the missional community for their judgment, for our good, right? For our discipleship, for our help. But Paul, look, look, let's keep reading what Paul says here. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this, to your shame, literally shame on you. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between the brothers? Now that is a burn if, you, if you've been with us for a while because the Corinthians were like, they love to think they're wise. They love, they, they thought they're really wise people. They, they loved Greek and Stoic philosophers. So they just really took a lot of pride in their wisdom and their amount of knowledge. So when he says, oh, you're not even wise enough to settle a little dispute, mm, dig, that one hurt, right? That one hurt. And then, Wise enough to settle disputes among the brothers? Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And look, here's the key. Here's the key. And that before unbelievers. Listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, if you, if, you, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, this holy ethnic won't make sense to you. The way that we live our lives won't make sense to you. We don't expect it to. The way our morality, we're not trying to put our morality on you. We don't expect you to. The only way that we can do any of this is through the Spirit of God and because God's called us to do it. We don't, we're not on, you know, a campaign to take our morals everywhere and, and, and judge everybody else by our morals. That, that's not what, we, what we're doing. We're judging inside the church. We're trying to get right inside the church, do things right inside the church so that unbelievers will look in and go, oh, that's how the races get along. That's how people with different temptations and different sinful tendencies can love each other and give each other grace. Oh, that's how it's done. So the fail, one of the fails here is they've lost their missional identity. They're not being good missionaries. They're not thinking about the world that's looking in at them and the way they're living. Christian, can I ask you this? How often do you think about how your neighbors are looking into your life? How often do you think how unbelievers are listening to your talk? And listen, Christians should not sound like conservative talking heads. 
There is a difference. You can be right-wing and moral and not Christian. Right? There should be a clear difference when we're speaking. People should go, I can't peg this guy. He's conservative on some things. He sounds liberal on some things. He loves people. He gives them grace. But he's, you know, he stands up for the unborn, things like that. I, I just, this guy bugs me, but I like him. I don't know what's going on here. Right wing, left, I can't peg him. Where's he at? We're a holy ethnic. The gospel of Jesus Christ shapes us in different types of people. But Christianity, many times and in many places, has been hijacked by right wing fundamental people or even left wing people. Hijacked it for social causes, hijacked it for political reasons. And it's not okay, and it's not good. And Paul is speaking a corrective word here to the church. And this is what he says. You've already lost. If, you're bring, if you can't settle arguments amongst yourself, you've already lost. You're no longer a distinctive, holy ethnic. You've already failed. Let's keep reading. Why not rather suffer wrong? Uh, I can think of a few reasons. Why not rather be defrauded again? I can think of some, some reasons there. But you yourselves, look here, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Listen, here's the problem. Those who should be laying their lives down in sacrifice self-sacrifice for their brothers and sisters and for the watching world are taking advantage of each other. The ones who are taking, should be taking the hits are actually hitting others. The ones who should be giving up their rights are actually claiming their rights. The ones who should be okay with being defrauded are actually defrauding others. See, and this, if you, if you understand church history at all, you know there have been terrible Absolutely horrible things done in the name of religion. In the name of Christianity even. Now, none of those things are biblically condonable. None of those things are, are gospel-centered. None of those things are from the heart of God, but they've been from the mind of man who wanted power, wanted you know some kind of political power or some kind of kingdom Right? But if you study the history of the church, horrible things have been done in the name of Jesus, not by the Spirit of Jesus. And those things are being done in this church right here in Corinthians on a smaller scale. They're suing one another, they're taking advantage of one another. And Paul, listen, Paul doesn't pass over it. Paul doesn't go, well, at least you're Christians, so everybody's in here. Those guys out there, man, they're really jacked up. All those people that are out playing frisbee golf today in a 60-degree day, those sinners out there. Paul goes right for the Christians. Really? That's what my daughter's favorite word right now. Really, Dad? Really? Right? That's what he's doing. Really? You're suing one another? You're defrauding one another? Really? And then listen, here's his last, or here's another. Do you not know? Verse 9. Or do you not know? Appealing to the head, right? Have you forgotten? Do you not know that, look, that the unrighteous will not 
inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, kingdom of God, let's just say that's heaven, all right? That's the new creation. That's God's rule and reign. That's the afterlife with God. The unrighteous will not inherit the king. Now, this is where I'm going to sound. You're going to be like, some of you like some of the stuff I said before, but now I'm going to sound like a right-wing crazy man, okay? I'm just going to tell you. Why? Because it's in the Bible. That's why. The righteous, the unrighteous will not go to heaven, will not experience their future with God. Now, he, there is no wiggle room here, right? There's no back door. There's no exit. You feel the weight of that. It's pretty clear. Does that statement make you uncomfortable? Right? I'm just going to say it like this. Only the morally clean go to heaven. Only the perfect get eternal life. Only perfect, righteous people inherit God's kingdom. Now, listen, let me show you why. God, we've already said this, God is holy. God dwells, it says, in unapproachable light. I want to say God is distinct and different like the sun, right? I don't want to take the sun on a date with me, okay? I get close to the sun, woo, right? I combust. God is like that. Anytime God even showed his backside, God showed a little bit of himself in scripture, people didn't go, oh, there you are. When God showed up anytime and showed a little bit of his glory in scripture, people were humiliated. They fell on their faces. They said, woe is me. Hide yourself from me. I can't look upon your glory. That's, see, God's holiness is his glory on display. So God is holy. He's distinct. He's perfect. He's morally clean. Therefore, his kingdom is like that. His kingdom is a holy kingdom. So it naturally follows that to make it into his kingdom, you have to be holy as well. Now, are you trying to f figure out a way around that right now in your head? Like, okay, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not holy. Well, you know, I might be holy, right? No, my wife's not, but I might. <laughs> See, how do you deal with the fact that you know you aren't holy? Are you trying to get an exemption because you know that there are people doing worse things than you? Listen, I'm not as bad as that guy. Listen, God's standard isn't holy-ish, right? There is no holy-ish, right? You go out to the curb with your recycling bins, you sit here down, that guy's got way more beer cans than I do. He must be way off worse than me, right? That's not the standard. There is no curve, now listen, we, what do we want to do here? Listen, your flesh right now, your, your heart is trying to find wiggle room, trying to find a way around that. And that's why Paul does this. Oh, have you forgotten? Did you not know? And then what's, what's he followed up with? Do not be deceived. Dang it. How did he know I'm deceiving myself right now? How did he know I'm trying to find a wiggle room, trying to find a way out of this, trying to find a way around the holiness of God? Do not be deceived. See, we all want to trick ourselves into thinking that we're not the unrighteous here. I'm not unrighteous. He's talking to someone else, right? He's talking to the murderers and he's talking to the, the, those really bad ones out there. Remember, Paul is speaking 
to people who call themselves Christians. He's speaking to the church. And he's saying, the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. Please hear me, church. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what are we to do? Well, first off, let's see, what, what does it mean to be unrighteous? Look at verse 9, or at verse 10, I'm sorry. No, the last half of verse 9. Do not be deceived. Look, neither the sexually immoral. Okay, sexually immoral, Sam covered it last week. I'm just going to hit on it. Now listen, um, sexually immoral, it, it's really clear. It's a junk drawer term for any sexual activity outside the bonds of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. We get, we're, we're, in the culture, we're taking a lot of hits for that because of our stance on homosexual marriage, right? Like we, we believe it's not a marriage because there's not a positive and a negative. There's not a male and a female. We believe, uh, we believe in diversity. We believe to be married, you have to be a man and a woman. And there's a lot of, you know, we get a lot of pushback on that. And, and, and we shouldn't be, you know, have hate-filled speech and we shouldn't be bigots and we shouldn't be haters and we shouldn't be picketing. We shouldn't be doing all these things. We should be loving and, and giving grace. But listen, our stand, we, the world doesn't get it, but we, guys, this is how crazy it is, right? We say, even if you're engaged, you can't have sex. That's what we're saying. Like, we're not just saying, like, we're not just, you know, bigots and saying homosexual people should. We're saying we can't, even in marriage or, or outside of marriage, right? Affairs, anything like this, this, this is a sin. This is sexually immoral. And, hey, we didn't make it up. Christians didn't make it up. God who made our bodies, God who created our bodies, created them. In this, in this way, and he created sexuality to point to the union of Christ with the church. That's what he created it for. So, he, so scripture says we can't be sexually immoral, right? And, and that means pornography, right? So a preacher, a right-wing preacher who's up here hammering on homosexuality and he's himself watching pornography, he's, he's guilty of, you know, he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. So, if you're having sex outside of marriage, if you're doing any sexual relations outside of marriage other than with your spouse, then you're in sin and you're, you are unrighteous, okay? Before I got married, I mean, I'll just tell you, like, yeah, I was sexually immoral, right? So this is me. I'm in this text here. Fail. I'm unrighteous. Crap. In trouble. Nor idolaters. Second one, nor idolaters. What does that mean? And I don't, listen, God's standard is, is, if he's ultimate, if he's the biggest, if he's the best, if he's holy, he's totally different, he's the only thing worthy of worship, idolatry is putting anything in the top spot of our heart, loving anything more than God. Again, if you're not a Christian, this sounds crazy to me, to you. If I love my wife more than I love God, I've broken the commandment. If I love sport more than I love God, I've broken the commandment. I'm ultimately worshiping something other than God nor men who practice homosexuality. And if you, there's a little note on that. That, that, that text has actually got two words, over 2,000 years ago. That text has two words for homosexuality. It's the, it, it, it includes the, the active and the passive in, in homosexual relationships. Nor thieves, those who steal, nor the greedy, those who just want more and more and more and more and they're never satisfied with what they have nor drunkards, those who consistently get drunk. Again, drinking alcohol is not a sin. Getting drunk is. Nor revilers. Now listen, for all the church folk who are like, I love it when he talks about the sexually immoral. 
I love it when he talks about homosexuals. I love it. Go get him, Pastor. For all those religious people right here, let me, let, me under, let, me, let me teach you what reviler means. This word reviler. It is someone who attacks the reputation of another by slander. It's gossip. It's sharing something that was told in private, trying to make someone else look bad. That's a sin. Nor swindlers. See, they had used car salesmen back then. I knew it. No, sorry, sorry. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, he just says it again. Like, these are the sin. These are sins. This is a junk drawer term. This isn't all the sins. This isn't the only ways to be unrighteous. But this is a list of things that are unrighteous. And he's very clear about it. Right? There is no um, battle on if these things are wrong or not. Even though the culture may say they are, even though some churches are now saying that homosexuality is okay and that you can be a pastor and you can be a priest and be homosexual, there is no debate among clear theologians. There is no debate. This is sinful and wrong and a failure in the church if you practice these things. Now, here's what's crazy. That second one up there that's idolatry, you actually can't break any of the other ones without breaking that one. Because what's actually going on in here is that all of these people, thief, adulterer, sexually immoral, all of these people are actually loving something else more than God. That's the only way to, to break these commandments. If you really dug down deep, listen, here's the thing. You would discover that these people don't even want heaven. See, if I'm a thief, I steal because God is not enough for me. God is not enough. My heart isn't happy in God. My heart isn't being fulfilled by God. My heart is not loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, right? So therefore, I will take what's not mine because God's not satisfying me. See, so I can't be a thief without being an idolater. Sexually immoral. You can't be sexually immoral without being an idolater because basically what you're saying is, I want to do with my body what I want to do with my body. It's my body. Mm, did you make it? Were you in the womb creating yourself? It's actually not your body. It's a gift of God. God created your body. And you can't sin sexually without placing a person as more important than your creator, than your God. Their love means more to you than his love. So you actually can't break any of the commandments without first becoming an idolater and putting something else on the chief spot in your life. Now, this is where I... Hopefully I'll sound. So let me. So what do we do? The church, this is, the, many churches, conservative churches especially, they read this list and go, oh, that's the world. Let's go hide away from it. Let's go get away and create this own. Okay, we're a holy ethnic. Let's go create this new holy ethnic and get a camp. Okay, if they get a camp, just things are going bad, right? If we buy a campground, just, Leave the church, okay? Leave the church. Now, but listen, think about this. Many people think you can get away from these sins. You can get away by pulling out of the world and creating your own little enclave, right? Amish, the Amish have tried to do this, right? They pull out of society. You can go up, you can see them up by Iowa City, and they're still driving their little buggies and freezing their butt off in the winter, 
right? They, they, they don't have technology, they don't have all these things. Why? They're trying to get away from sin and keep their ethnicity. Now, this is so interesting. I haven't watched it, but I just saw a preview for a show called The Amish Mafia. If the Amish have organized crime, right, I'm pretty sure that no matter where you go, sinners go with you and sin goes with you. Cell phone or not, television or not. I'm like, where did they learn about the mafia? Smuggling, smuggling in like Al Capone letters or something? I don't even understand how you, you don't even have TVs. Right? Listen, you cannot create some kind of utopian society on this earth because sinners go everywhere. Sinners are, see, I hope you hear like, I, actually I could go through this entire list and I, I think I've broken this entire list. I, like I am your pastor. Many people think, well, you're the holy man of God and you're, the, I, I'm guilty of these. I am unrighteous. I think you're unrighteous too, <laughs> right? I don't have to hear your story. I read the Bible and I think you're in there too, right? So what are we going to do here? Like if this were a Western movie, we'd all be coming into town on a black horse with a black hat, right? We would all be bad guys and gals, right? We have all broken these commandments. We have all broken God's law. We've all rebelled against this holy God and we all deserve, listen, his just wrath. So here's the question. How can unholy people, sinners, be made holy? How can we get fixed? Listen, we have to be fit for heaven. If God is holy and you enjoy, listen, if you enjoy getting drunk more than you enjoy God, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Heaven is going to be phenomenal. Heaven is going to be a place of utmost joy. But right now, if you enjoy being, being sexually immoral more than you enjoy God, you're not, you don't even want to go to heaven. Yeah, I get it. You don't want to go to hell. Nobody does. Right? But you don't want, heaven is about a whole, heaven is holy people with a holy God enjoying holiness. Now that might sound really boring, if, but you don't understand what holiness is. Perfection. No sin. No stain. No arguing. No division, no bigotry, all kind of different races in unity. It's beautiful. Is there any hope? But here's the deal is there any hope for unholy people to be made holy, to, to be fit for a holy heaven, to a holy kingdom? Look at verse 11. I'm going to tell you right now, if you've hated everything I've said up until this point, I'm a bigot, I'm a, you know, whatever, I'm on my soapbox and I'm hammering and thing. This, you need to get this scripture, what I'm about to read right now. And Christian, you need to get it as well. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel and all of scripture. Here we go. Verse 11. He just went through the list, right? None of these people inherit the kingdom of God. Look. And such were some of you. Okay, so, so we're, listen. So he's built this thing up. Sinners don't make it into heaven. Heaven's holy. You're unholy. But you were unholy. Such were some of you. Hmm, now that were 
If I was you, I'd highlight that were, I would circle that were, because that is a brilliantly plural, past tense indicative that should give us great hope today. They were unrighteous. They were unholy, but now they aren't. So what changed? How did they get holified? Right? How did this, what did this holification process look like? How do you go from whole, unholy to holy? And you guys know, like, it isn't like you just stop doing something and then you start doing good things. You, you, you can't. Once, you've, once you're unholy, there is no cleanse, fixing that yourself. There is no paying, you know, trying to do more good deeds than bad deeds. That, that's impossible. Paul's saying to the church, all those things that I just condemned, that, that was you. So listen, I'm not a fool. That's us. There's homosexuals in the church. But the difference is something else defines their identity more than their sexuality. See, anything that defines your identity is your God. If it's your athletic prowess, your athletics are your God. It's your chief thing. If your money shapes your identity and you feel better than others because you're wealthy, your money is your God. Paul is saying here that God has to be your God. He's the one who shapes your identity. He's the one who tells you who you are. So what's the process look like? How do you go from unholy to holy? Look at this. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul uses three terms here. He says you're washed. That means you're completely cleansed. Sinners, there's a way to be completely cleansed, to be washed of all your sins, past, present, and future. All your sins gone. Though your sins are red like scarlet, they can be white as snow. There's a way to be washed. Secondly, he says, you've been sanctified. Sanctified just means made holy. You've been taken out, placed in God's treasure box. So even though you were unholy, God chose you, put you in his treasure box. Now he is making you holy. Well, that's good news. And again, that's past tense. And then lastly, justified. He says, there is a way for the great judge of all creation. Listen, Hitler did not get off easy by putting a bullet in his head. Hitler did some of the most horrific things and and, and condoned the most horrific things ever known to man. And he took a bullet in his brain and he does not get off easy. There has been no justice for Hitler on this earth. But there will be, because a holy and just God, he will stand before and God will condemn him to hell. There will be justice for the millions that were slaughtered. God is a holy and just judge, but listen, listen. These believers, there's a way in the past that they've been justified. What does that mean? You are guilty, but I declare you not guilty. I declare you God Acquitted of all your crimes. Three brilliant things done by the Spirit of God here. Cleansed, made holy, and justified, acquitted by God. Now, how does that happen? When is a person 
made holy. And I'm just gonna tell you, I'm gonna have to go quick here. When we embrace Jesus by faith and turn from our sins, when we look outside of ourself for our goodness, outside of ourself for our righteousness, that we are not better than anyone, we are sinners, and only the perfect Son of God who lived the perfect life, Jesus Christ, and died a death as a substitution for me to pay my debt on the cross, when I look to him and put my faith in him, and I turn from my sin, Christ, Jesus, credits his righteousness to me, credits his holiness to me. Jesus puts his holiness on us. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? A lot of people think it just means to be sorry for your sin. No, it doesn't. A lot of people go, man, I'm sorry for that. I made a mistake. A lot of people are sorry for their sin. They just feel guilty or they just feel ashamed or they're bad they hurt somebody else. Listen, gospel repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I'm gonna show you six things here that gospel repentance is as we close. This is the ingredients for gospel repentance. Number one, sight of sin. Listen, no one repents. Why do I talk about sin? Because many of us, we don't want to look at sin. We don't want to acknowledge sin. We don't even know what sin is. You can't repent of something if you don't know it's sin. You've got to see it. And here's the deal. Many of the things that you don't like about yourself, they're not quirks. (laughs) They're not foibles. They're not personality attributes. They're sin. And you need to be able to see those as sin so that, number two, you have a sorrow for it. Like, my sin grieves me because I've broken the heart of God, because I've rebelled against my creator who loves me so much that he sent his only son to die my death that I deserve. He took my place and gives me his righteousness that my sin should grieve me. My sin should bring sorrow. I should feel sorrowful about my sin. Third, And that sorrow, seeing my sin, feeling the weight of it, should lead me to confession. I should confess my sin to God. I should confess my sin to my brothers and sisters in my my missional community or in my fight club. I should confess my sin. Fourth, I should have, I should have a shame. There should be a weight of, I've grieved against my father. I've grieved my father. Paul says it here. Shame on you for this behavior. There should be some shame. Now listen, that shame shouldn't be just this heavy weight that crushes me, right? Fifth, that shame leads me to what? Hate my sin. Listen, if you're addicted to pornography and you don't hate it, you haven't repented. There should be a hate. I hate what this does to the female body. I hate this what, what this does to me as it makes me look at women in a different and um, degrading way. You haven't repented if you have felt sorrow, you haven't confessed it, you haven't felt the shame of it, and you haven't hated it. Lastly, a turning, a change in direction, turning from that thing. Listen, this is the six ingredients to true gospel repentance. This is why you, and this is why we don't just jump to here. Stop it. 
You got to see it. You got to feel grieved over it. You have to confess it. You have to feel the shame for it. You have to feel a hatred for it. From it. You have to hate it and you have to turn from sin. And what are you turning to? You're turning from that and you're turning to Jesus Christ, the one who loves you so much that he bled and died for you. The only God who bleeds. The only God who suffers with the suffering. Thomas Watson, this is from Thomas Watson's book on repentance, and he said, if any one of these is left out, it loses its virtue. It's no longer repentance. Hear me, it's no longer repentance. If you go, oops, sorry, my bad. No longer repentance. Head, heart, hands. What do we say? We say around, we say around here often that when we come to understand the nature of the gospel and who we are and who God is, we come to see that we are far worse than we ever thought possible. But then when we see the grace of Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross, we come to realize that while we are worse than we ever thought possible, we are also simultaneously more loved in Jesus Christ than we can ever imagine, we ever imagined, ever hoped for. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the way that God saves us from his holiness by making us holy through the substitution of Jesus, right? Through the substitution of Jesus. Let me show you something. The gospel, because of the way it happened, Jesus substituting himself for us, it actually creates in believers a repenting spirit rather than a defensive spirit. That's what I'm saying in closing. See, when we sin against one another, the problem wasn't just they defrauded one another. The problem was they couldn't, no one was repenting. No one was owning it. No one was giving grace. We are a group still of sinners. We've been made holy through the righteousness of God, through the substitution of Jesus, but that gives us a repenting spirit. So when we sin against one another, we are therefore compelled to repent to one another and compelled to offer amazing grace to one another, right? The Holy Spirit does that in us. And Paul shows us one of the ways we do that is by remembering the gospel, the such were some of you, right? I know some of your stories out there. Such were some of you. We are sinners who've been saved by the amazing grace of God. And because we're so aware of the grace of God that has been given to us in Jesus, listen, here it is. Here, listen. We don't fear seeing our sin and owning up to it. People get so weirded out at Sacred City when we just talk about our sin all the time. They're like, I hide that stuff. Why are you saying it from a stage? Right? Because the gospel has done so much work in our heart, we're okay with saying, yes, we're sinners. We are nothing but from the grace of God. We can humbly say, I see my sin. I sinned against my brother. And I'm grieved over that. Brother, please, will you forgive me? Now, let me give you an illustration. It's like this. If I'm a billionaire and someone steals $100 from me, I'm upset, but it's really not a big deal. Right? It's like a pinprick to my finger. 
I'm a billionaire, 100 bucks. Not a big deal, right? But if I only own $100 to my name and someone steals that $100, that's not like a pinprick. That's like a cut to the heart, right? If I have $100 to my name, they take my last dime. That same grievance is like a cut or a stab to my heart. Same amount, same crime. For one, it's a prick to the finger. For the other, it's a knife to the heart. Now here, two people, often two Christians, and I see them in arguments. I see them in conflict. I see them in missional community, and they're getting uh, uh, maybe disciplined, or maybe they're getting criticized, or somebody saying, I don't like the way you said that, or that was offensive, or two Christians, one's getting corrected. I see them in situations where they've blown it, and somebody is telling them about it, and it's so clear that there are some people who are really quick and able to repent. They say, you know what? You're right. My bad. I blew it. I'm a sinner. I made a mistake. I was offensive. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You can tell it's no more than a prick to their finger. Because they are rich with the Father's love. They're so aware of what they've been given in the gospel. They're so aware of such were some of you. You were unholy, you were unrighteous, but you have been made holy and made righteous by the grace of Jesus Christ that when somebody offends you, it's like a prick to your finger. My identity is so secure in Jesus Christ. I don't have to fight to the death to prove that I'm right. But then there's some other of us, Right? I see other people, you try to correct them, you try to bring any, you try to confront them in any way, and they're angry, they shift the blame, they hate themselves, they grovel. It's clear that it's not a prick to the finger, it's a stab in their heart. They can't admit they were wrong, they can't own up to what they've done. Why? They have forgotten the gospel. It's no longer warm in their heart. They've forgotten such were some of you, but by the grace of God. They actually think that they're good people. See, moralists think they're better than other people. Christians realize they're no different from anyone, but for the grace of God. Listen, I'm going to just tell you, and this is a warning for us. It's a warning for us. This is what a church looks like when it forgets the gospel. When it walks away from the gospel. They stop repenting. They stop giving each other grace. They stop forgetting that they're worse than they ever thought possible, but simultaneously more loved than they ever hoped or dreamed or imagined. And what happens? I'm going to tell you, you stop repenting. You stop giving grace. You're no longer a holy ethnic The thing that makes us holy is the grace of God. The thing that keeps us holy is the grace of God and our awareness of it, our turning back to it when we fail, our repenting. That's what makes us holy. That's what makes us distinct. If you're an outsider, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I want you to know you'll come in and you'll see bad things. You'll see us sin against each other. You'll see us hurt each other. You'll see us make mistakes. But I pray to God you'll see each other repent of our mistakes and you'll see each other give each other grace that you'll see nowhere else on the earth. Nowhere else. It's not tolerance. It's not tolerance. So much deeper than tolerance. Can't find it anywhere else. It's grace. It's grace.
And if you're an unbeliever this morning, we're not calling you to be conservative. We're calling you to a God who died for you. We're calling you to a God who bled for you. We're calling you to a God who takes unholy people and he makes them holy. That's what I'm calling you. And you don't have to dance for it. You don't have to do anything for it. You have to embrace him by faith. And I pray that the spirit of God is bringing that work and doing that work in your heart right now. As I pray. Father, would you save? Would you rejuvenate? Would you regenerate? Would you make unholy holy? You're the only holy one. You're the only one who can make us sacred, make us sanctified, make us holy. You're the only one that can do those things because you're the only perfect one without sin or stain. And I thank you for a way out. I thank you that, that you, have cre- you have stepped into this story of humanity and you've made a way for unholy people to become holy and to enjoy the holy God and a holy kingdom. Would you apply that work to us? Would you apply that work to our heart this morning as we come to eat of your body and drink of your blood? Would you stir our affections as we think deep thoughts about the gospel? Would it affect our heart and would it move our will? Would we love your holiness? Would we hate our sin? Father, and for every one glance we take at our sin, would we take seven looks at Christ who paid for all of our sin with his precious blood? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The men who are serving with me would come this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take a minute. We're going to do this, but I, I want you to take a minute and I want you to interest, I want you to think. I want you to meditate. I want you to think about what we just, what we just read, what we just heard. I want you to pause and let the Spirit do some work.